Welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding. I'm John Green. I'm the host. And we're here today. We are at the last Sunday of the Epiphany. So the last day, the last Sunday at least, before Lent begins. Wednesday is Ash Wednesday, and so it'll be a special Ash Wednesday edition of the show. Right now I'm sitting upstairs in my house. I'm looking out the front window. It's kind of rainy, cloudy, whatever you want to call it outside right now, and I'm looking out and I'm seeing a fawn and a doe right out in front of the house. Just We've been feeding them lately, and so they're here, and I've got a couple of six-point bucks that hang around as well, and so the fawn and the doe are looking in the window at me right now, checking me out. So it's a good day. It's a good day to see them out wandering around and it looks like the doe is limping a little bit don't know what's going on with her but anyway so here we are and it's uh, uh, been a rainy couple of days we had a good week we went um, took a couple of days off and um, went out um, just a little bit north of town and, and just stayed in a motel we just did a staycation thing and had a couple of nights where we went out and had dinner and just enjoyed ourselves it was nice to be able to do that had other plans, but they got kind of rained out or whatever. Um, anyway, so it was a good week. But we have Lent coming up this week, starting this week on Wednesday for liturgical Christians. And we so we'll do the imposition of ashes. Um, and as we begin to, to prepare ourselves to celebrate, it sounds like a funny thing, but we deny ourselves for 40 days in order to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And we do that in order that we would prepare ourselves by, by recognizing the unworthiness of uh, our own lives to participate in the resurrection of Jesus, but also to, to remind ourselves that it's because of sin in our lives that Jesus actually did go to the cross. And so it's a, an odd kind of a thing, but, but, it's, but it is the way the church has chosen to prepare itself for Easter for a long time, and I believe that it's an appropriate way to do it. I, you know, I spent most of my life in a different sort of a Protestant world where we didn't do that. Well, not most of my life any longer, but half of it. Um, and so it's I've come to love and appreciate the, the rhythm of the church year. It gives a different rhythm to my life, keeps me from being locked into the rhythm of the world. And so we give up things for Lent. We take on new disciplines for Lent. My new discipline is actually going to be a new podcast. It's going to be a daily podcast. I'm hoping that if I can get this worked out right, it's going to take a little bit of getting used to for me because it's going to be a shortened version of everything, but it's still handling three lessons in Psalms, but on a daily basis. And so I'm hoping that I can get this down to like 10 minutes for that particular uh, podcast, and then hopefully I can transition that over to a uh, uh, video Although, at the same time, I would admit that I have a face made for radio, not for video. But, nonetheless, I'm going to give it a shot. So I'm excited to, to take on that new discipline. It's a discipline that I had for a long time. I used to blog those daily lessons, and I did that for about seven years. I did blog every single day, the daily lectionary, for seven years. And that was a good discipline for me. I enjoyed doing it. And, uh, but it's time to get reimmersed a little deeper in the Word of God on a daily basis for me, and so I'm excited about that. Um, excited for a whole lot of things, but uh, anyway, so it's, it's 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 time for transitions and changes to happen, and that's kind of what Lent does. It is Lent puts you in a different framework and a different mindset, and helps you to make the changes necessary in your lives. It gives you an opportunity to evaluate kind of what needs to change in your life. And then to make at least some of those changes. 
um, it's you know it, 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 people think of it as a time to diet, a time to do this, that, and the other thing, but it's really a matter of honestly evaluating where you are in your life and making the decisions necessary to change that. But it's to draw closer to Him. It's not New Year's uh, Eve or New Year's resolutions or whatever. The the point is actually to so that your life more, might more mirror His life. And that, that Jesus might shine forth through you. And it's a matter of stripping away so much that consumes our lives. And that's the reason we would get rid of this, that, and the other thing. We would evaluate our lives and say, you know, I spend a lot of time doing this. Or I spend too much pleasure in these things. And so those things might have to go away. But in order for those things to go away, you don't want to just have more free time in your life. You want to delight yourself in the Lord. And so you want to pick up new disciplines. Um, if if you don't know what disciplines are, then I would encourage you to get the book Celebration of Discipline by Richard Foster. I think you'd uh, benefit from it greatly. It, it talks through various disciplines of prayer and fasting and other things that um, that are useful for the Christian life in order that we might draw closer to Him, in order that we might rid our lives of so much clutter that we've accumulated and, and sort of reorient our lives. And so I, I encourage you to, to think about the discipline of Lent and how you might use that time to make changes, radical changes maybe in your life that need to be made, that you would get refocused on the right things. So there we go. So this is the last Sunday of the Epiphany. So Epiphany, remember, it begins with on what we call Three Kings Day, which is January the 6th. And January the 6th is a time when we remember beginning there with the revelation of the wise men showing up in Bethlehem. And that's when the Gentile world began to take notice of Jesus. And prior to that, he had been revealed to the Jews. And now he was revealed through the wise men to the Gentiles. So the rest of Epiphany is the continuing revelation of Jesus Christ. And it always ends with the same gospel lesson. And that, that is the um, transfiguration of Jesus. And so that's always the rhythm of the way things work. It's the greatest sort of earthly revelation of Jesus um, because it's, it, it bears also the testimony of God the Father, which comes first at the baptism in a general way because certainly there was a revelation prior to that. There was a revelation to Mary and to Joseph. And so then we come all the way forward now to this revelation, which is accompanied by God's word. And that's why it, Epiphany ends with, with the transfiguration. And then we begin to move through the season of Lent. And then as we move further forward, we get into that week of Easter, that awful week that includes Maundy, Thursday, and Good Friday. And then the incredible joy and celebration of Easter and so it's that time of year where we change and transition to a new sort of way of worshiping and a way of thinking and so here we are at the at the edge of that and we're going to think today about the transfiguration it's one of my favorite um, seasons actually um, uh, or not seasons but one of my favorite celebrations because it reminds me of one of the things one of the great moments in in my life where God, where I saw God just do something absolutely incredible. This is not the um, the collect the the prayer for the day, 
<coughs> on the last Sunday of Epiphany, it's the collect for the day of the Transfiguration, which is August the 6th. So it's quite a bit of time in the future, but I want to read it to you, then I'll tell you a quick story. It says, O God, who on the holy mount revealed to chosen witnesses your well-beloved Son, wonderfully transfigured in raiment, white and glistening, Mercifully grant that we, being delivered from the disquietude of this world, may by faith behold the King in His beauty, who with you, O Father, and you, O Holy Spirit, lives and reigns, one God, forever and ever. So many years ago now, probably almost 20 years ago, I was working in Pauly's Island, and there was a, a woman who had lived in the community prior to the time that I lived there, and they, she moved back to Pauly's to die. She's a youngish woman. She's younger than I am now. She was probably in her mid-50s, and I got to know her a little bit before her death, and, and so ministered to her, spent some time with her talking and all that kind of stuff, and, and just um, appreciated who she was. Got to know her reasonably well, and she was in the hospital. She was in a coma, an induced coma, but she could come out. I mean, she would come out a little bit. It wasn't a deep, deep coma. So I went, and um, she had requested that I come at some point and bring communion to the hospital. And so I went and went in and I had my collar on and all that stuff, you know, and went in and, and there was a, a, a black woman sitting there in the room. It's a pretty good sized room for some reason. But anyway, she was sitting on a, a chair and when I came in the room, she turned her back to me as I spoke to her, turned, looked out the window, wouldn't have anything to do with me. And I'm setting up for communion and I'm thinking this is ridiculous i don't know what's happened what i could possibly have done to her but nonetheless i just went ahead and did that and i decided that i should read that colic that i just read to you because I, what i realized was she was about to see jesus in all his glory as she passed from this life and so when um i got ready to to set up for communion i said you know, you're welcome to join us if you like she kind of grunted at me and really didn't say anything and so i went on into the uh, service it's a little liturgy for home communion and, and i got to and read that collect and when i did i heard amen lord jesus huh. so she came over and said hi i'm zephy i said hi i'm john and uh, she said can i join you i said certainly i said before we do this i want to pray over claudia and so she said can i pray with you and i said absolutely and as soon as i started praying she started praying too I thought it was going to be a John will pray and the Zephyr will pray or whatever. But she started praying as soon as I did. And within just I don't know, 10 seconds, maybe, she's praying in tongues very loudly. And we were praying together. And, and I realized somebody had come into the room and kind of turned, looked over my shoulder. And there was a nurse standing there, wide-eyed, at this unlikely pair <laughs> praying over this woman. And so we finished praying. And, and I, we gave communion. She was able to take communion. So... As I got ready to leave, Zephy and I had talked a good bit, and um, she asked me if I would write that prayer out for her so she could give it to her pastor. And I thought, well, that's a bizarre thing when an Anglican clergy person reading an Anglican collect can suddenly be united with a sister in Christ who had previously thought maybe this guy didn't have anything to offer. And I didn't. I just had that collect to offer. Well, Sometimes what we have to offer and, and where we need to go, we need to trust the tools we've been given, let's say, um, 
I would never have guessed that that collect would have brought me and Zephy together. And after that, we became good friends. And it was a great blessing to have her in my life. And she was one of the last people who prayed over me before I moved here, in fact. And she was going to miss me greatly, and I missed Zephy as well. And so transfiguration is a time when we think about focusing on Jesus, letting everything else go and just focusing on Him, because that's exactly what the message was that day at the Mount of the Transfiguration. I'm going to get there in a minute. We're going to start with the, um, the Old Testament lesson, which is 2 Kings 1, the first 12 verses. I'm going to read them real quick, and I'll probably comment like I always do. Now, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. Now, we don't know where Gilgal actually is. It's probably not the Gilgal that we first see as the place where the Israelites encamped after they crossed the Jordan, because the geography of this journey we're about to take with Elijah and Elisha doesn't make sense if that's where Gilgal actually is, because they're wandering sort of in a, in a weird little pattern if they are. So we think Gilgal is actually not so much a place name as a type of place. And so, because there are multiple Gilgal references, and, and they couldn't possibly all point to the same place. So Gilgal is not a word that necessarily means a place name. It has a meaning of its own. So they've, they've gone from, they're at Gilgal. Elijah says, you stay here, Elisha. I'm being called. The Lord wants me to go to Bethel. But Elijah said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. Now, remember what Elijah's problem actually was. Elijah thought he was alone. He thought there were no other prophets besides him, and he alone had to fight the prophets of Baal and Jezebel and all the forces of wickedness that Jezebel and her religion had brought into Israel. He was fighting for the soul of the nation, and he thought that he was alone. I, even I, am left. And so he thought he was alone, so he went out into the wilderness where the Lord had to meet him there, not in the whirlwind or any of those other things, but in a still small voice and ask him, why are you here, Elijah? Why are you in this place? Why are you not in the land with the people? They need you. You're important to those people. And Elijah gave his little speech about everybody else has gone astray. Everybody else has become apostate. And I, even I, and the only one left, and God tells him then, you've got several thousand other prophets who have not bent the knee to Baal. You're not alone, Elijah. But he felt alone. And so here, what does Elisha say? As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. I'm not going to leave you by yourself, Elijah. You don't do well when you're by yourself. And so they went down to Bethel. And listen what happens at Bethel. The sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, yes, I know it. Keep quiet. So you've got, a, he goes from Gilgal with Elisha who won't leave him alone. And what do they do when they, what do they find when they get to Bethel? They find a company of prophets there in Bethel. So Elijah is able to see. No, there are other prophets in the land. God's showing him those prophets that he had previously told him about. And so wherever they go, they go first to Bethel and they find prophets. And then Elijah said to Elisha again, stay here, here in Bethel, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, he, Elisha, said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. Same thing he said before. He's staying with him. He's not allowing him to be alone. So they came to Jericho. 
And what happens when he gets to Jericho? Listen to this. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he answered, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. So here we go again. We go to Bethel and there's prophets. We go to Jericho and there's prophets. So Elijah knows that this is not going to be left just in the hands of Elisha. And then once they get to Jericho, Elijah says, Please stay here for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. And then they get to the Jordan. And what do you think happens there? Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them as they were standing by the Jordan. And then Elijah took his cloak, the one that he had previously thrown over Elisha when he anointed him to be the new prophet to take his place. He took that cloak, he rolled it up, and he struck the water of the Jordan. And the water was parted to the one side and to the other till the two of them could go over on dry ground. This is the third time people have crossed over on dry ground. The first time at the Red Sea when the entire nation went through and then Pharaoh's army was drowned in the sea when it came back. And then at the Jordan again where they came and crossed into the land. At that time, remember, they had to go into the water first. And when the priest's feet went into the water, the water began to roll back so they could cross through on dry ground. And so here, just Elijah and Elisha go, and they cross over on dry ground. And when they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, I guess you're not going to leave me alone. He didn't really say that. What he said was, ask what I shall do for you before I'm taken from you. And Elisha said, please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. That's a big ask, and it's not Elijah's to grant. But that's his prayer, is let a double portion of your spirit land on me. So there's, he, he wants a double anointing like Elijah's anointing. And Elijah said, you've asked a hard thing, yet if you see me as I'm being taken from you, it shall be so for you, but if you do not see me, it shall not be so. He's not promising anything. He's hearing from the Lord and being a prophet, and he's speaking that into Elisha. God has told me is what he could have said. And then Elisha said, please. <clears throat> so they went on and talked. And then behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven, and Elisha saw it. So he's going to get that double portion. And he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of horse of Israel and its horsemen, and he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. He's mourning, is what that means. He's mourning for uh, Elijah is the reason he tears his clothes in two pieces like that. So that's the story of Elijah and Elisha. And so remember, there's a, the prophecy at the end of the book of Malachi is, is that before the Messiah comes, will come Elijah, who will return because Elijah didn't die here. He's taken up into heaven. There's a lot more to that story in Jewish lore. and We're not going to get into it today. I don't have time to do all that. But there's some fascinating stuff there. I may do a short podcast on it sometime, maybe tomorrow even. I'll give you a little bit of heads up on what I'm talking about there and what I'm thinking about what they believe about Elijah. But they believe Elijah will come back prior to Messiah. And so at the Seder meal every year at Passover, they leave a, t- a, a, a place at the table for Elijah in case he returns. 
and they drink of Elijah's cup and they leave a cup for Elijah. It's a full cup and they leave it at that place. So they're waiting for him to return. And remember when John the Baptist comes, he's asked, are you Elijah? And he says no, but later Jesus says Elijah has already come and he's pointing to the ministry of John the Baptist. There's some odd beliefs, certainly embedded in all those things, and that's some of what I want to talk about because it'll tie together some of that for you about what Jewish beliefs are concerning the return of Elijah and not just the return of Elijah, but, but what he's up to now and what he's been up to for the last few thousand years. And so there are two for whom Israel is waiting. And if you remember from last week, I told you about one of them, and one of them is the one who is a prophet like Moses that Moses says will come. And when they when that one comes, what does Moses say? He said, he'll be, a pro he'll be one like your brothers, and when he comes, listen to him. He's going to be a prophet like Moses, and you're to listen to him. Well, if he's going to be a prophet like Moses, and he's going to be a prophet like Elijah, then he needs to do some of the same things that were done through those two prophets. And so Jesus does, right? He provides food when they need it, just like Elijah did, and just like Moses did. He's going to do other kinds of things exactly like them. And so he's authenticating himself in that way. But they're looking for two people. They're looking for the one like prophet like Moses, and they're looking for Elijah to come. So the two big things that they're waiting for are those two. So here we go now into the gospel lesson, Mark 2, 9, 2 to 9. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And we don't know exactly which mountain that is. Certainly it's posited that, we, that, that oh, this is the mountain, but nobody knows for sure. And we're not told here in Mark or Matthew's gospel, we're not told which mountain it is exactly we're talking about. And so he takes them up into the high mountain and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Now, anybody knew that in advance, I have no earthly idea. But they did. And we know they knew it in advance, not just afterwards when Jesus told them. Because Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he didn't know what to say. For they were terrified. I'm that guy, right? I'm not the guy who can stand there just in awe and not say anything. Nope, I'm the idiot guy who's got to say something no matter how dumb it might be because, well, i got to break that tension somehow. And so Peter speaks up like Peter always does. Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Let's make a Kodak moment. Let's preserve this and make sure that it never ends. And then a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. And the voice said, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine telling Peter, Don't tell anyone that you just saw me transfigured therewith Moses and Elijah, don't tell anybody what you saw, including the rest of the disciples. That Can you imagine being asked to keep that particular secret? And then until the Son of Man had risen from the dead, and so they don't even believe he's going to die. 
So what happens here? What's happening? So let me go back and catch up a little bit on something for you. I'm going to try and tell this as quickly as I possibly can. So one of the things the Jews believe, or some at least, I mean, it's, it's part of the Midrash, it's part of, of the belief system, is, is that Adam and Eve, when they were naked and unashamed, were actually clothed, or at least they thought they were clothed, because it felt and looked to them like they were clothed. And what they were clothed with was light, the Shekinah glory of God. I'm not saying this is in Scripture, so don't hear that. But they, they were clothed in what looked like light. And so what the sages have, have come to believe is, is they were clothed in that light so that it authenticated them as being from God because they bore an image of God to the animal world, to the rest of creation. And so there was a certain fear that was on them because of that Shekinah glory of God. But that Shekinah glory looked like clothing. And what they believe is, is that, that once sin entered the world, then that was removed. And they were aware suddenly that they were naked and they were ashamed. Because they knew why that had gone. And then God had to make skins for them. And, and then the fear and the dread of them had to fall upon the animal kingdom. Because they no longer had a natural fear of them. Because they were no longer clothed in the inexpressible light. And so... The first time I heard that, the very first thing I thought about was this. It was the transfiguration, right? Because it's exactly the opposite. The, the veil is removed from Jesus. The veil that covered his glory is removed. And now his glory shines forth from him. In exactly the opposite way, Moses' face shone when he had been with God. And the glory of God gave him sort of a God tan. Here, Jesus has, it's been veiled. God has, has kept them from seeing the fullness of the glory of Jesus until this moment. And now that veil is removed and you see Jesus wonderfully and beautifully and incredibly glorified there on the mountain while he's with Moses and Elijah. And so remember what I said is, is that, that what Moses said was that when this one like me comes, listen to him. So what does God say? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. I think part of the reason that he says that is, is that what is it that Peter says? Listen to that again. He says in the beginning of what he says here, what does he say? He says, Rabbi. It's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And so at some level, Peter has to ascribe some sort of superlative to Jesus and because he, he's got Moses and Elijah there. And, and now what is he saying? Teacher. What does a teacher teach? The teacher teaches the law and the prophets, the, the law in Moses and the prophets in Elijah. And so Jesus is, is the one who teaches them, Right. So we got this sort of, you know, confusion going on about who Jesus is, even in Peter's mind at that moment, even though he's the one, remember, who had confessed that Jesus was the Son of God. And so what's God's response to that? And now those are gone. Moses and Elijah are gone after the cloud overshadows them cloud like on Mount Sinai and the word comes from heaven this is my beloved son listen to him so every time I read that I think well the cheese stands alone and so they get a different vision and then they hear the word and and now they've got to stand there completely in awe 
of Jesus because what God has just done and just said to them is, is that no matter what, what you saw apparently didn't convince you. So now you've got to hear something different in order to be convinced. And that hearing is God saying, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And he's pointing completely to Jesus who now stands there by himself. And so don't be confused, Peter, James, and John, about who he is. Don't be confused in, in the light of who these other two are. He is far superior to them. He is the very word of God. They are the ones who got it secondhand. He is the word. And so Jesus is transfigured in two ways there that day, one by sight and one by hearing. And he is lifted into that place, and the disciples don't know what to make. But the first thing Jesus says to him after they're told to listen to him is, don't tell anybody. But now Jesus is truly alone. Moses and Elijah are gone, and many people believe that, that their main function in being there was actually sort of like in the Harry Potter movie where Harry has gone to meet Voldemort to the final end of the book. He's gone to meet Voldemort, and he knows that he's going there to do what? To lay down his life so that his friends would live because Voldemort will kill him, and then he'll spare all his friends. So Harry goes, and before he gets there, when he's walking through the forest, all his relatives and all those who have gone before him, who have protected him, meet him there. And they tell him they'll be with him through the end. And, and so I believe that, I mean, I, I can go on with the Harry Potter stuff forever. And it's probably sounded jarring to you when I brought that up. But, but what a lot of people believe is, is that that's the purpose of Moses and Elijah being there. They're there for one reason, and that is to encourage Jesus to finish well, to run this race all the way to the end. And they can both say that we didn't do that. Elijah had to be decommissioned as the prophet for Israel, and Elisha had to be raised up. Moses wasn't allowed to enter the promised land. And so a lot of people believe that they're there to encourage Jesus to finish well, that they're there so that he can be reminded that there is glory awaiting him and him alone because he's the only one who's ever going to finish well. The only one who will be resurrected. And so here they are, and, and now Jesus is alone, and he's with the disciples, and he's speaking again of his death. Right after this incredible moment of revelation in the transfiguration, he cautions them not to tell anyone until he's risen from the dead. So it's, there's a hiddenness always in all of this and it's and it's a hiddenness because because we have to come to this by faith and we have to listen to him we have to acknowledge that he is the well-beloved son and that's kind of what paul's getting at in the epistle lesson today which i won't expound very much and because it doesn't need it and so paul says even if our gospel is veiled even if, even if everybody doesn't get it, everybody doesn't come to that living faith, some people just can't get the blinders off. He says, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In other words, God's not making it available to everybody. He's making it available to the chosen ones. And he says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. God didn't do it. The God of the world did it. To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. 
For God who said, let light shine out of the darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so our call then is to make him known. And Lent is the invitation that there might be less of us and more of him. And so we're invited into that, having been given the highest revelation possible, visually and auditory. They saw him transfigured and they heard the voice from heaven proclaim him as the beloved son and told to listen to him. We're told the same thing. And let, again, it's the opportunity for us to step into that anew, to take stock of all the things in our lives and who we are and what we are and, and be honest with ourselves about what we're presenting to the world. What would the world see when they see us? What would they see as our sumum bonum, our highest value? And then saying, what is what are those things that are keeping me from that, from being more like Him? And then to remove some of those obstacles and to make our lives a little simpler, that we might spend more of our lives on Him and with Him. And so I invite you to that idea and that thought with this high revelation of Jesus. People say that John, the Christology, the, the understanding of Jesus as the Son of God is higher in John than anywhere else. And, well, there's your lie right there. You can't get any more high Christology than God himself proclaiming that he's the beloved Son and we're to listen to him. And so I uh, encourage you to do exactly that, to hear that word and to heed his voice. You've been listening to Faith Seeking Understanding. It's been my pleasure to be with you today. My name is John Green, and you should wait and hope maybe that he's coming soon would be our hope. <laughs>